Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, welcome to everybody here physically in the Hayek Auditorium. Welcome to everybody joining us online and those who are following along on Twitter. Uh, today we're using the hashtag Cato School, hashtag Cato School. So if you're following along on Twitter or even if you're here and you don't really want to speak up or you want to send a question, you're welcome to tweet a question and I will watch Twitter as all the questions roll in and I will be in charge of asking them. Um, I'm Neil McCluskey. I'm the director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at the Cato Institute. Uh, it seems like over the last few months, the national school choice debate has gone from kind of chafing dish warm uh, directly into hot flames. I mean, things are really getting hot, quite possibly, I think, because the Trump administration has proposed uh, a federalized school choice program, which has thrown uh, school choice into sort of a high-stakes national issue. So I think that this has really become uh, much more contentious than it was, you know, six or seven months ago. Um, and I think it's gotten even hotter with the recent accusations by American Federation of Teachers uh, President Randy Weingarten that private school choice programs are the, quote, only slightly more polite cousins of segregation, unquote. Now, I don't think that the shrill tenor of the debate from some quarters has been particularly helpful, especially in our rapidly polarizing uh, country, but I do think that this debate has kind of a silver lining. And, it, and what that silver lining is, is it's gotten us to begin to re-examine what people see as sort of the basic social and political roles of education. Is it just about preparing people for a future so that they can make lots of money? Is it about bringing diverse people together? How do we have a system that protects pluralism? All these things are now being discussed, and I think that that's good. Central to this debate, and central to debate about education really from the earliest days of the nation, was what role does education serve in a democracy, and how should that education be delivered? in such a government. Uh, and that's what we're going to be discussing today. Now, who will be doing the discussing? Well, allow me to introduce the panel. First up is Corey DeAngelis right here on my left. He is the newest member of the Cato Center for Educational Freedom. I should be able to say that better since I direct the Center for Educational Freedom. In any event, as a Cato newbie, um, please give Corey a nice Cato audience hello. Don't clap, just say hello. Uh, let's say hello to Corey DeAngelis. Yeah, very nice. Good job, everyone. Um, Corey is a policy analyst at Cato and also a distinguished doctoral fellow and PhD student in education policy at the University of Arkansas and a policy advisor for the Heartland Institute. His research focuses on the effects of educational choice on student achievement and non-academic outcomes such as criminal activity, political and economic freedom, schooling supply, and fiscal impacts. Uh, Corey has published several studies on educational programs with organizations such as the School Choice Demonstration Project, the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and the Wisconsin uh, Institute for Law and Liberty. His research has been published in peer-reviewed journals such as the Journal of School Choice, and he's been signed the Wall Street Journal. Uh, his work also has been featured at the Foundation for Economic Education, EdChoice, and Education Next. He holds a Bachelor's of Business Administration and a Master of Arts in Economics from the University of Texas at San Antonio. Next, over here, we have Richard Collenberg. Now, Richard may seem familiar to many of you because he has been on Cato panels before. 
Um, outside also, I believe, you can find a rebuttal piece I wrote to a recent article he had in AFT's American Educator magazine about threats to democracy. So very apropos. Now, to, what's that? Uh, you can link to it from my article, although not the paper version. Um, and I suggest you do, after you read mine. In any event, uh, today, though, I am strictly moderating this afternoon, and hence I am strictly neutral. With that in mind, today I will, of course, not be telling Richard how wrong the things he says are. Uh, I'll leave that to others. Um, and you are welcome for my almost superhuman sense of fairness. Um, <laughs> Richard's a senior fellow at the Century Foundation with expertise in education, civil rights, and equal opportunity. Uh, he's been called the intellectual father of the economic integration movement, K through 12 schooling, and arguably, arguably the nation's chief proponent of class-based affirmative action and higher education admissions. He is also an authority on teachers' unions, private school vouchers, charter schools, turnaround school efforts, labor organizing, and inequality in higher education. He's the author or co-author of six books, including, I'm just going to list three, Tough Liberal, Albert Shanker and the Battles Over Schools, Unions, Race, and Democracy, all together now creating middle-class schools through public school choice, and the remedy, class, race, and affirmative action. Finally, on my far left, only physically, uh, we have Max Eden. Max is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Before joining MI, he was program manager of the Education Policy Studies Department at the American Enterprise Institute. Now, by the way, if you know anything about Max's old boss and no doubt his mentor, Rick Hess, uh, you'll know that we're lucky that Max isn't wearing just shorts and a t-shirt today, um, <laughs> much less this wonderful jacket that he has on. So, sartorially at least, Max has surpassed the master. Congratulations, Max. Anyway, so uh, Max's research interests include early education, school choice, and federal education policy. He was co-editor with Rick Hess of the Every Student Succeeds Act, what it means for school systems and states. Uh, Eden's work has appeared in scholarly and popular outlets, such as the Journal of School Choice, Encyclopedia of, Economic, or of Education, Economics, and Finance, and the Washington Post. He holds a BA in history from Yale University. Now, with the introductions done, each panelist will have around 12 minutes to say whatever it is they want to say, and they will do so in the order in which I introduce them. So don't wait for me also to signal for you to get up. Just take the initiative and do it yourself. Come right up here to the podium. Uh, once they're done, I might ask a question or two of the panelists myself, uh, but my goal is to quickly move to audience Q&A. And so with that, Corey, it's all yours. Thank you, Neil, for the kind introductions. Corey DeAngelis again. And today I'm going to be discussing mostly whether self-interested schooling selections in the form of private school choice programs in the United States could actually lead to a strengthened democratic society. I'll go over the underlying theories first, and then I will go over a review of the scientific evidence as it relates to this type of uh, topic. First, we should be looking at the goal that we actually have here. 
I'll be quick to point out that democracy is the best form of government that we have out there. It is the best form of legitimized coercion that we have out there. However, as with any other type of democracy, it does suffer from some inherent defects that we should be quick to point out and take into consideration throughout this debate. One of the defects, obviously, is the tyranny of the majority. Because in a true democracy, in a pure democracy, there is no respect for minority or individual rights. So that might be a problem. Another problem might be this concept of minority rule. Whenever there is a policy with a concentrated interest and costs that are dispersed enough, it may still get passed. Again, in America, there's been a, a rise of political ignorance. After all, we do have a Trump presidency. And there is this concept of rational irrationality that is uh, very alive and well today that we might want to touch more on during the Q&A. And then even if you're part of the majority in a democracy, even if you get the policy that you voted on, you're going to end up with a lot of stuff that you did not actually want. And it's going to come at a very high price to the taxpayer. And so the question we should really be asking during this discussion today is not how to strengthen democracy in itself, but what is the best system of schooling out there that we have available to us that allows us to minimize the defects that are inherent to democratic societies all around the world, while also allowing us to capitalize on all the benefits that democracy has to offer us. So there are about six arguments out there that I've found throughout history about why we ought to force children to attend public institutions for schooling. I'll go over these six arguments and then provide my thoughts on each of these six arguments um, from here on out. The first is that in order for a democracy to thrive, we must have an educated populace, that uh, we must have voters understanding what they're voting on. They need to be able to uh, figure out what they ought to vote on, and they need to be able to figure out the political process in general. I would argue that voters only need to be rationally self-interested. They only need to know how to maximize their utility by picking basket of policies A or basket of policies B. And that is not the same thing as intelligence, uh, even though a lot of people like to use these terms synonymously. Uh, but even if we do buy the argument that in order for an educated, for a democracy to thrive, we must have some minimum level of educational abilities or cognitive abilities, this only calls for compulsory education in general. It, in other words, schooling and education can be done in private schools as well. Uh, in fact, uh, schooling and education are not public goods, contrary to what you've heard on blog posts and in the media, uh, according to the economic definition. We can talk more about why that's important later. Uh, but if we truly want to increase cognitive abilities, we should all be all for private school choice voucher programs. If you look at the scientific evidence, the meta-analysis conducted by Shaquille Anderson and Wolf at the University of Arkansas finds that from the 20 experiments around the world, uh, there is a small positive impact of private school choice on academic outcomes. And I've seen another trend in the United States, a few trends actually. The amount of kids in public schools has increased. Today we have nine out of every 10 kids in public schools. We've also seen that uh, the respect of young kids that what they have for democracy has been on the decline. It could be that these trends are related in some, in some way. Others will argue that if people select their own schools, this, these selections, of course, are going to be based off of rational self-interest. And if that's the case, then they're not going to pick schools that accrue third-party benefits. In other words, if you're picking your own school, you may not pick a school that specializes in shaping your citizenship skills or your moral attributes, 
But I would argue that parents actually do care about the citizenship skills of their children. So it is in their self-interest to achieve this purpose as well, even though it has third-party benefits and spillovers. And we shouldn't make perfect the enemy of the good here. We shouldn't be comparing this to utopia. Self-interested choices are made in the voting booth as well, right? The only difference is that when self-interested choices are made in the voting booth, only the politically powerful and the advantaged people in societies actually get to achieve their self-interested goals. On the other hand, underrepresented minority students or people in society are unlikely to get what they want from the political process. Another argument is if people choose their own schools, well, they may choose schools that have kids that look like their own. This is the whole racial stratification argument. I would argue, however, that people actually do value diversity because there are obvious benefits to being around diverse student bodies. So if you allow people to pick and exit their already segregated neighborhoods, they're likely going to integrate society, not segregate it. And this is shown by the scientific evidence, which I'll go over later. And I think every single one of us in here agrees that racial integration, at least at the margin, is a good thing. And socioeconomic integration is a good thing as well. I think where we disagree is the best way to integrate. I see two different ways in which we can shape society uh, to be more, in, uh, uh, more racially integrated. One way is through top-down government coercion. You can try to force people to be integrated, like we uh, did, did in our embarrassing country's history long ago, but we only did it in a separate direction. Uh, I think that use, use of government force actually has a lot of problems because it creates a lot of negative uh, unintended consequences, which we can talk about more during the Q&A. But then there's also other types of integration as well. There's income, in, in, uh, income diversity, there's diversity of thought, and after all, these are educational institutions, so we should be pushing for those things as well, and we should talk more about that during the Q&A. Uh, but another argument for keeping kids in public institutions is, is, is that America has a diverse student body. And in order for society to get along with one another, we need to force them to go to public schools in order to interact with one another and get along and make society more stable. But I'd argue that just having kids in the same building doesn't mean that they're actually interacting with one another. And I would argue that the incentive structure in private schools is actually stronger in order to, uh, they have more of an incentive to foster debates about sensitive subjects and controversial subjects and that's where real, uh, the real uh, social cohesion comes from. When people that disagree about things talk about things that they disagree with, they may actually find out that they actually agree on a couple of these things, and they may stop attacking each other's motives and morals and start uh, treating each other with respect. Another argument is that, well, we need to, in order for democracy to thrive, we need to teach kids in public schools how to respect American values, whatever that may be. Um, but I would argue that the original American value was individual liberty and freedom from coercion. And the founders saw that a limited democracy was the best vehicle to achieve those things. Um, on the other hand, I would argue that the state actually has an incentive to promote larger government. Why would it undermine itself? So I would argue that we should not have the state in, involved with uh, controlling public schooling uh, because of the obvious conflict of interest here. And then that E-word is not uh, mentioned in the federal constitution. I looked all over for it. Uh, but I did a systematic review of the evidence on the literature of how private school choice programs in the United States could impact these democratic outcomes. I looked at the effects on tolerance of others, 
uh, civic engagement, and social order. I found 11 such studies that were either experimental or quasi-experimental, the most methodologically uh, rigorous studies out there. There were 11 studies, and none of them found negative results on any of these types of outcomes. So if you're looking at these tables, for example, look at table one. Uh, if you see a green box, that means it's a statistically significant positive effect on tolerance of others from a private school choice voucher program. The white box in the, in the right-hand column means that the, the effect was not statistically different from zero. Here we're looking at civic engagement. Again, I find the majority of the studies have positive effects. Um, only two of them have null results. And these are positive effects on things such as charitable giving, political participation, and volunteer activity. I only found one study on, that was either quasi-experimental or experimental on social order as measured by criminal activity. And Dr. Wolf and I followed kids until they became adults. The kids that got the full dose of the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, the voucher program in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, were about half as likely to commit crimes as adults uh, relative to their traditional public school peers. So here's the overall results from the systematic review. Seven of them were positive. Uh, the majority of the studies, five were null. But most importantly, perhaps, uh, none of them found negative results. And this is forthcoming, peer-reviewed in the Journal of School Choice. It'll come out in December. You guys are the first ones to be able to see the results, besides the peers that were doing the review, of course. Uh, and then Elise Swanson uh, has an, another study that's related, uh, forthcoming in the Journal of School Choice. She reviewed the evidence on the impacts of school choice in the United States on racial integration in the United States. What's great here about her study is she divides it between district choice, charters, which are both forms of public school choice, and voucher programs. Essentially, what she finds is a mixed bag for district choice and charters, some of them positive, some negative, some mixed. Uh, but the clearest results emerged for private school choice, for voucher programs. Eight studies were found. None were negative. All seven of the eight were statistically significant and positive, and one found neutral impacts. So if we're just looking at this review of the evidence, if we had to push for one type of school choice over the other, I would argue we should push for private school choice. And you probably can't read this very well, but these are her eight voucher studies. Green means good. It means racial integration. Tan means no difference. I don't see any red boxes there. Uh, during the Q&A, we should talk about this study, though, that is the Egalite and Mills study. I think it's the best one out there. They look at individual student transfers from the experimental valuation of the Louisiana Scholarship Program and how that affects racial integration there. Uh, but the real question that I'm going to end, end up end off with is, should we be pushing more for public school choice or private school choice? I think we all agree here that um, school choice in general is a good thing. I think we disagree on what type of school choice is the best to push for. I'd first like to point out that a lot of people that lean towards one type over the other don't even know the real difference between a public and a private school. It turns out that it's actually a very nuanced definition. So we should talk mm -hmm. about that during the Q&A, of course, uh, because it'll take a little, little longer than we would like. But if we really, truly wish to increase diversity, we should open all options to all children, no matter if the school is public or private, if we really wish to integrate society. And then, based on economic theory, if I had to choose one or the other, I would lean towards private school choice because price differentiation is a good thing in a market. Uh, charters <laughs> suffer from price fixing, which leads to less information in the market and a barrier to market entry, which could result in less choices overall. Uh, similarly, charters suffer from price floors, which lead to shortages. Think of charter waitlists here. And these shortages, as economists know, lead to quality deterioration of education over time. 
Also, charter authorization process leads to a barrier to market entry as well. Um, so I think we should push for all types of choice, but if we had to pick and um, if we had to pick one, I would lean towards private school choice. I would say education savings accounts may be the best option out there. They are a form of private school choice. We can talk about exactly what that means in the Q&A. But one good thing is they allow for transportation funding. So if we believe that neighborhoods are already racially segregated and by socioeconomic status, we should allow parents to use these funds to go to private schools that are not in the same neighborhood. And then ESAs allow for more uh, price differentiation, which leads to more market entry, more efficient spending on the parts of the parents. And it allows parents to customize the educational environment uh, for their own children. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy that you guys all came. I'm excited to hear from Max and Rick as well. So hopefully you guys have some great questions during the Q&A. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Neil, and, uh, and others at the Cato Institute for inviting me. And, and thank you, Corey, for that, uh, that presentation. Uh, I, I have a somewhat different view uh, of, of the evidence. Um, the, the topic here is school choice uh, and democracy, friends or foes. And uh, not to be uh, go Clintonian on you, but I really think it depends on what the definition of, of school choice is. Uh, as as uh, we've, we've heard from Corey. And if we're talking about school choice as a euphemism for private school vouchers, which poll much worse than school choice, then I think it's very much a foe of, of democracy. On the other hand, if we're talking about public school choice that is designed uh, to promote equity, then I think you probably couldn't find a better uh, friend of, of democracy. So, so I want to do a couple of things um, in, in, this, in uh, my, my presentation. One, to just acknowledge, I think, uh, uh, what most of us in Washington recognize American democracy is in trouble. Um, then to talk about the importance of education and strengthening our democracy uh, to outline the reasons that I think the evidence suggests private school vouchers will make things much worse. Uh, but then finally to talk about this, this alternative, public school choice that um, uh, designed to promote democratic goals that I think could move us in, in the really in a good direction. So um, why do I think democracy is in trouble? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Um, one has to do with data showing declining support for democratic uh, values in, in the United States. Uh, secondly is our willingness to elect a candidate who has authoritarian tendencies as president. Uh, and finally, to acknowledge that we've seen some rise in illiberalism on the left as well, uh, including on, on college campuses. Uh, so there's research to suggest that uh, when you polled young people um, and you asked them, is democracy a good system or a bad system, uh, we've seen an uptick in the percentage of young people who say democracy is a very bad, a bad or very bad way to run a country. Um, 
up from 16% to uh, almost a quarter of, of young people. I think that should be astounding and, and truly frightening um, to people who, who believe in democratic values, that we now uh, are at a point where a quarter of young people uh, think we have a, democracy is a bad system. Uh, probably the biggest evidence is that we elected a candidate um, who was willing to trample on a number of um, provisions in our Constitution that had been widely uh, accepted by Republicans and Democrats alike for, for generations. Uh, the freedom of religion. We had a candidate who called for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. A, uh, a president who has called uh, the press the enemies of the people. Uh, who questions the independence of the judiciary when, they, uh, when it rules against him, and who has a soft spot for, for dictators. Um, just to be balanced here, I want to acknowledge that on college campuses, we've seen uh, an increased instances in which students are shouting down um, people with whom they disagree. Uh, and I think Danielle Allen at, at Harvard University put it well when she criticized the um, those who uh, tried to shout down uh, Charles Murray from the American Enterprise Institute at Middlebury, when she said, democracies and academies have historically risen together. The supreme academic aspiration is to defeat bad arguments with better ones. Rather than shouting down Charles Murray, the protesters should have read his work and figured out how to critique it. Um, that seems like common sense, but we don't uh, have full agreement on that that issue anymore. Um, second point, that education is critical to promoting uh, democratic values. Uh, historically, democracy was at the center of why we had a system, uh, why we created a system of public education in the first place. Uh, when we were an agrarian society, the founders were not concerned about um, creating uh, skills for the knowledge economy. They wanted to make sure that uh, this new experiment in democracy uh, would work. And they were particularly concerned about the, the problem of the demagogue in a democracy. And so Horace Mann, the founder of public education in this country, um, suggested we needed public schooling. And he argued a Republican form of government without intelligence in the people must be on a vast scale what a madhouse without superintendents or keepers would be on a small one. Uh, in the 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt talked about the importance of public education uh, as a safeguard of our democracy. If you looked around the world at that time with the rise of fascism, um, we didn't have that happen here. And Roosevelt attributed it in part to our strong uh, support for public education. Uh, the great Justice Felix Frankfurter talked about teachers in our system as being democracy's priests. Private school vouchers, um, in my view, will undercut democratic values for a variety of reasons. And Corey nicely uh, outlined some of those in order to knock them down. But let me put them back up again. Um, so uh, we obviously want an, uh, a populace that can uh, be discerning and make good choices in a democracy. And I'm, I was surprised uh, at Corey's characterization of the, the voucher research, uh, because those who, for those who've paid attention, uh, you know, this year has been a very, very bad year for voucher supporters. 
you've had four major studies uh, of in, uh, places as varied as uh, Louisiana and Indiana uh, and Washington, D.C. and Ohio finding truly disastrous results um, from private school vouchers. Usually, you know, for, for years the research was very mixed in Milwaukee and Cleveland and elsewhere you'd, you'd find, well, maybe it helps a little bit, maybe it hurts a little bit. These have been devastating studies of the kind that uh, education researchers rarely see. Uh, so I think we have to uh, be cognizant of that, of that new research. Um, secondly, uh, private schools don't model democracy for students. It's important that we have a system of, of education where uh, students are not only taught democratic values, but also see them uh, enacted in practice. And, um, and the, you know, Adam Urbanski from uh, the Rochester Teachers Union has said, uh, we can't model, uh, we can't teach what we don't model. And, and yet, um, that's what private school vouchers would do. We don't have democratic control over private school vouchers. Some of you may have seen a recent story in the Washington Post which says we don't even know how much money is going to the DC, to various schools uh, in the DC voucher program uh, or, or how many students are going. These are unaccountable um, institutions. Thirdly, they further segregate by race and class, and I'll, I'll cite some studies on that. They allow for religious discrimination, which undercut democratic values. I'll, I'll elaborate on that as well. Um, but the biggest concern is that democracy is not, democracy promotion is not what private schools are in the business of doing, right? 80% of private schools are religious in character. Their purpose is to instill a love of God. That might be a very good thing, but their purpose is not to instill a love of democracy the way uh, public schools are set up to do. Um, and I, I, um, I don't have time in the, in the initial opening remarks, but I, I want to come back to some of those studies and talk about that Corey cited and some of the, some of the problems with those, those studies. Um, okay, in terms of uh, segregation, uh, we have research in the United States and also abroad that consistently finds uh, privatization leads to increased segregation by race and by socioeconomic status. And, uh, this is a nerdy audience, so I just put up some of the citations uh, from Chile, uh, Sweden, Netherlands, and, and New Zealand, consistently finding increased segregation. Uh, furthermore, there's the issue of religious uh, discrimination and other types of discrimination that private schools can engage in. Uh, my colleague Kimberly Quick is here, and she discovered uh, a school in, in North Carolina that under the private school voucher system received $285,000 of public money. Uh, and you can see in their admissions handbook, they say, if you are Jewish, if you're Muslim, if you're Hindu, we do not want you. Do not apply. If you're gay, if you're lesbian, if your parents are gay and lesbian, do not apply. We do not want people who engage in activity that the scripture describes as perverted. OK? Is that? a teaching of democratic values? Uh, finally, let me um, talk about something positive here. The, uh, because too often we have people criticize private school vouchers without saying what they're there for. Uh, and uh, Clifford Janey, who's the former superintendent of public schools in Washington, DC, and Newark, and Rochester, and I wrote a piece um, uh, called Putting Democracy Back into Public Education, in which we outlined a four-part 
point plan for improving the way in which public schools would uh, promote democratic values. Uh, first, having to do with the explicit curriculum and strengthening our history and civics curriculum, but also that implicit curriculum, going back to Adam Burbansky's point, that what you can teach something in a textbook, but if students see the opposite happening all around them, it sends a very different message. So I think we should use public school choice to revive uh, school integration for students, uh, enhance parental involvement, uh, and increase uh, work, uh, enhance workplace democracy for, uh, for teachers. Again, modeling democracy for, for students. This is the, the report that we, we put out. Um, in terms of strengthening the curriculum, we talked about uh, making sure that we teach history, warts and all, um, uh, and that the genius of democracy is that when we had slavery, there was an abolition movement. When we had segregation, uh, there was a civil rights movement. When we had oppression of women, there was a feminist movement. That democracy has built within it um, opportunities for, for self-correction. Uh, that we should teach students what it's like to live uh, in non-democratic nations, what it's like to live in China, what it's like to live in Russia. Uh, that we should restore an emphasis on uh, history and, and civics in the National Assessment for Educational Progress, which has been watered down in recent years. Um, and to throw another conservative idea in there, um, uh, Robert Pondicio has suggested uh, that we, we uh, require all students to pass a civics test that's given to, to immigrants. Uh, public school choice is a key way to integrate our schools. Uh, and underlines the democratic message that uh, we are all uh, political equals in our society. Uh, integrated schools also make it harder for a demagogue to run against um, and scapegoat minorities. And integrated schools also produce higher levels of academic and uh, educational attainment, which we know um, promotes uh, greater involvement in, in civic affairs. So at the Century Foundation, we've identified 100 school districts that are promoting socioeconomic integration of schools, primarily through, through public school choice. That's up from just two when I started researching this uh, issue uh, about 20 years ago. They are located in about 32 different states, red states and blue states. They're using public school choice um, to promote more diverse schools. To give you one example, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, they have a system where there is no neighborhood school. Every school is a school of choice. And parents apply, uh, and then um, the school district honors those choices in a way to promote socioeconomic diversity. So you don't have rich schools and poor schools. You have economically mixed schools across the board. And you can see they're getting very good results uh, for various subgroups of students, uh, low-income African-American and Hispanic students, you can see graduation rates in Cambridge uh, as much as 20 percentage points higher than in nearby Boston. Uh, and the white students continue to do well. Um, in, not all schools can be integrated. And so uh, Cliff Janey and I talk about uh, community schools and parental involvement in those schools. Um, again, making sure that we are modeling democracy for students. Uh, as an example, in St. Paul, the American Federation of Teachers uh, local has invited parents to be part of the collective bargaining process. Uh, and so students can see that, that happening. Uh, and the final point is to enhance teacher voice, uh, something that rarely happens in private school vouchers uh, programs. Uh, so what a student sees 
in a school will, imp uh, will impact how she views uh, democracy. And if she sees a principal coming in and bossing a teacher around, that tells her one thing. If she sees workplace democracy in action, where teachers have a say in how schools are run, that sends a, a very different, different message and a, and a more positive one, in my view. Uh, so here's uh, some more background. If, if anyone is interested, here are my details if anyone wants to hunt me down. Um, and thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon, and thank you all for coming. Very good crowd. Uh, looks like we have it's summer intern season. A few interns here. That's good. Uh, you go to events. You listen to experts. You learn things. Very good. One of the first things I learned going to events and listening to experts was there are three things that experts do to make it look like they know what they're talking about. Uh, they use slides. They cite studies. And they refer to people smarter than them. Uh, my colleagues have already cited most of the studies I would have. It's kind of hard to do slides without studies. So I'm mostly going to rely on uh, people who are a lot smarter than I am to make the case that school choice and democracy should be friends. Uh, so the first quote I'll just kind of throw out there, let you guys chew on, is this. A general state education is a mere contrivance for molding people to be exactly like one another. And as that mold in which it casts them is that which pleases the predominant power in the government, whether this be a monarch, a priesthood, an aristocracy, or the majority of the existing generation, in proportion as it is efficient and successful, it establishes a despotism over the mind, leading by natural tendency to one over the body. So who said that? Alex Jones and an eloquente? <laughs> no. Uh, that was John Stuart Mill. It sounds kind of Alex Jonesy to me, but I went to public school, so he would say maybe it should. Um, at any rate, this talk isn't school choice and democracy. It isn't school choice and despotism. It's school choice and democracy. So. Well, I'll come back to despotism here and there. I want to make the case that when it comes to questions of national civic life, uh, local self-government, and the inculcation of individual virtue, school choice and democracy uh, should be friends, if not besties. Uh, when it comes to national life, uh, the argument's a little bit more, I think, contingent than a priori. Uh, after all, the public school system was built in part on the premise that a little bit of despotism can be a healthy thing for democracy. Uh, over 100 years ago, as immigrants flocked to our shores, progressive reformers aimed to expand the education system, uh, largely, in the words of Teddy Roosevelt, to Americanize the immigrants. Uh, we must Americanize them in every way, in speech, in political ideals and principles. We welcome the German or the Irishman who becomes an American. We have no use for the German or the Irishman who remains as such. We do not wish German Americans and Irish Americans who figure as such in our social and political life we stand unalterably in favor of the public school system in its entirety. Uh, I tend to think that was probably a good idea at the time. Uh, a lot of people might tend to think that's a good idea today, but I don't think that's something that we quite have national consensus about anymore. Uh, I mean, can you imagine any politician, even Mr. Mr. Trump, who was referred to, saying, uh, to paraphrase Tuddy slightly, we do not wish African Americans and Hispanic Americans as such. Uh, I, I can't even imagine that being said. So our ethos is shifting increasingly towards pluralism, increasingly towards multiculturalism. But the system we have in place is largely one that was intended uh, to impose uniformity. And that makes for a very uncomfortable social fit. Uh, so uncomfortable that we can't really even say the words America, American, uh, or, citizen or citizenship in our public schools anymore. 
sounds like a kind of like right-wing histrionic complaint, but uh, Rick cited earlier Robert Pendicio, who analyzed the mission statements of America's 100 largest districts, which serve a collective 11 million people. And of those 14,000 words in those statements, uh, America and American were mentioned zero times. Uh, and the notion of citizenship did come up once, thanks to Anne Arundel County, Maryland. Good work. Um, this might not be unrelated to the fact that only 30% of American millennials think that it's important to live in a democracy. Uh, unlike Rick, I'm not super bullish. The public system can turn itself around. I would like to see him succeed in everything that, that he wants to do, and I will happily support it publicly. But I have my reservations, because I think things are uh, the way they are for a reason. We have a system that was designed to enforce a certain uniformity, and we are increasingly a pluralistic, increasingly a pluralistic nation. Uh, which I think leads to a sense of constraint and alienation, also not unrelated to what we've been seeing in national political life. Uh, and I think perhaps, maybe it's a gamble, I think it could be ameliorated by shifting towards a pluralist education system. Uh, so that's a national case. On the local level, I think school choice is demonstrably superior to the traditional public education system. In theory, traditional public schools are democratic. After all, people vote in school board elections. Kind of, not really. Um, in <clears throat> LA last month, after millions upon millions in outside money between the you know, corporate billionaires and the teachers unions were funneled in, voter turnout was a whopping 12%. And I do mean whopping because that is really unusually high voter turnout for a school board election, which are always off cycle. They tend to hover closer to three to 7%, and the people who bother to turn out on the first Tuesday in June to the polling places which are often in schools uh, are usually the people who the teachers unions want there. Um, but on the other hand, one could counter, there's really no voting whatsoever in private schools or in charter schools. So how could that, how could that be democracy? Uh, kind of to my money, the best book about democracy ever written, also the best book uh, about America ever written was written by this French guy named Alexis de Tocqueville uh, called Democracy in America in the early 19th century. He was trying to explain to his French people what these Americans and this democracy was all about. And the book wasn't, the book didn't just say, hey guys, look at this, they vote, that's cool. It would have been a pretty short book. Um, he rather waxes eloquent over things that don't have to do with voting, most particularly the penchant for Americans to form associations. He wrote, the political associations that exist in the United States form only a detail in the midst of the immense picture that the sum of associations presents there. Americans of all ages, all conditions, all minds constantly unite. Not only do they have commercial and industrial associations in which they all take part, but they also have a thousand other kinds, religious, moral, grave, futile. Americans use associations to give fets, to found seminaries, to build inns, to raise churches, to distribute books, and in this manner they create hospitals, prisons, schools. Everywhere at the head of an undertaking, you see the government in France and a great lord in England countenance that you will perceive an association in the United States. Uh, if Tocqueville were writing from the early part of the 21st century, he wouldn't really view schools that way. Uh, there are apparent teacher associations, but those are somewhat peripheral to the entire endeavor. I think he might look at American schooling as more of a French than an American endeavor right now. Uh, but if he saw school choice, I think he would recognize that as part and parcel of what he saw in the 1830s. You need a group of people, a group of teachers, school leaders who come together around a particular mission to launch a school for which they need to engage funders, 
philanthropists, the community, local politicians, and most importantly, parents and children, and they need to keep them in order to continue to operate. Uh, there isn't a ballot box involved in that process, but there's more self-government going on here, I think, than in traditional schools, and I think that pays democratic dividends. Uh, after all, Tocqueville also said, the most democratic country on earth is found to be, above all, the one in which uh, men in our day have most perfected the art of pursuing the object of their common desires in common and have applied this science to the most objects. Does this result from an accident, or could it be that there exists, in fact, a necessary relation between associations and equality? Uh, Tocqueville was very good at posing rhetorical questions. I think the answer to that's quite clear. Tocqueville was also pretty good uh, and somewhat unusual in his discussion of despotism. He wasn't particularly worried about the authoritarian despot. I don't know that what's going on right now would uh, be quite what he had predicted and feared. He was worried about what he called a soft despotism which covers the surface of society with a network of small, complicated rules, minute and uniform, through which the most original minds and energetic characters cannot penetrate to rise above the crowd. Such a power does not destroy, uh, but it prevents existence. It does not tyrannize, but it compresses, enervates, and extinguishes. Uh, I, don't, I tend to think we're not quite there yet in American society, but it's always struck me that this is a passingly reasonable description of school governance. Uh, between kind of No Child Left Behind, the Common Core at the national level, down to uh, collective bargaining agreements by teachers' unions at the local level. Uh, teachers are severely constrained by a lot of rules and regulations that keep them down. And I think that has knock-on effects in what, as Rick said, they can model to their students in turn. Uh, choice, by contrast, lets associations start with a blank slate, operate on their own terms, uh, putting educators in the driver's seat and letting them set their own mission and operations. Um, Finally, school choice and individual virtue. Our founding fathers uh, were pretty pro-virtue. Franklin, uh, Franklin said, uh, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. Did you ever hear the word virtue in your public school? I didn't. Uh, and I went to a very good public school, like very high energy teachers, high per pupil ratio, super smart class, the best the best public schools. Um, but I didn't hear it there, and I've also been to a lot of not so good public schools, and I also haven't heard it there. Uh, I have, however, heard it quite frequently in charter schools. Uh, you'll see virtues of the month posted on walls. You'll see uh, school-wide assemblies focused on temperance or compassion or perseverance. Uh, and sometimes it's kind of cheesy, and sometimes it's kind of inspiring, but I think that's a component that, because as a country we're having such a hard time agreeing about much of anything, we don't, and I fear, can't really see in our public system, but by letting educators form their own mission to inculcate their own values to kids, uh, we could see in school choice settings. Uh, after all, in a choice setting, they're entirely free to model virtue and expound it, but in a public choice setting, they are not free to appeal to an ultimate authority as the source of that virtue. Um, John Adams once said that it is religion and morality alone which can establish uh, the principles upon which freedom can, can securely stand. Only The only foundation of a free constitution is pure virtue. And I think one of the, the themes running through the earlier talks, but something I think a lot of policy wonks will try to beat around the bush at, is that between public school choice and private school choice, I would contend that it fundamentally comes down to the question of religion. Uh, and I think that's a question that our nation should have. There's a sense that we have always had this significant separation between church and state that's slightly ahistorical. The Northwest Ordinance passed right around time of the Constitution 
uh, stated that religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. Uh, religion first, morality second, knowledge third. Kind of interesting, maybe not everybody's values today, but uh, certainly worth thinking about. Because uh, I think that once school choice has been admitted as a good, that's kind of where the crux of the conversation will then lie. Uh, many folks on the right tend to see it the way that John Adams saw it. Uh, they tend to not uh, worry so much about the conflict that Rick talked about earlier. Many of the left, however, have been opposed fearing that uh, by doing this, they might enable the religious right to lead to some sort of theocratic despotism. Uh, maybe, uh, but as Ross Douthat has stated, if you don't like the religious right, you're definitely not going to like the post-religious right. Uh, and I think that's part and parcel also of what we've been seeing and talking about in our concerns here. So choice would hardly be a panacea, but I think that when it comes to helping our national institutions match our national values, uh, enabling self-government at a local level, and letting one generation teach and model virtue to another, school choice, uh, public or private, I think depending on where you come down on a question of first principles, is a friend to democracy. Thank you. OK, well, thank, uh, thank you all, uh, panelists. Um, we have a lot of people here. I'm getting some Twitter questions everything, which means people are engaged. So I'm not going to ask a whole lot of questions, but I am going to ask one, and I am going to express my great disappointment in the panel before I do it. Um, way to go, panel. Uh, what's that? I said, what about the Constitution? No, usually I say, what about the Constitution? But in this case, I think it's really critical, and, and we don't, we rarely do it. It's not just this panel. I never see it anywhere. Is, can you all, for me, define what you mean by democracy? I mean, is it just majority rule? Is it checks and balances? What is it where you all are really talking about operationally when you say we are doing something about democracy, we're trying to uphold democracy? What is that thing exactly? And it doesn't matter to me what order you go in. So you can go first. Yeah, I think so, it goes on automatically. Oh, OK, great. Yeah. It says push, so. Um, of course, uh, if we look at the textbook definition of democracy is just majority rule without minority rights or individual rights. Um, I tend to define this debate around, around I say we're trying to uh, pursue the goal of a limited democracy, a limited government that actually does protect uh, individual liberties and freedom from coercion, um, which is different from pure democracy, obviously. Uh, but that's what I see, and then I, Based on my review of the evidence, obviously the civic outcomes that I was looking at was tolerance of others, civic engagement, and um, social order. Uh, so we could kind of tie in stability as well, so like a stable society. I mean, I would define it as, as liberal democracy. So it's, it's not merely majority rule. It's, uh, it has built within it protections for minorities. Uh, and in essence, when a, what I think we need a defense of is is American democracy as defined in our Constitution. So that would include uh, all the Bill of Rights, um, the freedom of the press, the freedom of religion, um, the, the protection of minority rights, all, a, a, as a complement to uh, self-governance in which the, the majority rules within limits. Um, I would say it's the... 
question of democracy hinges on the degree of freedom that uh, individuals and associations have to pursue their own, own ends, uh, wherein they can be bounded by their own sense of self-government and their own inhibitions without requiring uh, an outside source to inhibit them to maintain order. Uh, so it's a, a sliding scale question to me. And the more freedom, the more virtue of the people, the less need uh, for masters, the more democratic a country is. Okay. Well, so now I'm going to open up to the audience. Um, we always say, please, just a question, no comment. I've decided that is just hopeless. You're til <laughs> tilting at windmills, hoping that people won't give a comment. So I like to let things go a little crazy. You can give a little <laughs> bit of a comment if you want, but I'm going to cut you off because there are a lot of people here. But if you want to say a little something fine, please do, though, get to a question, even if that question is just, so what do you think about that? Um, and I'm not going to try and force everybody to do what I know I can't force them to do. Um, and then uh, I will intersperse some, we have, again, Twitter questions. I have a question actually somebody emailed, so I'll try and work those in, too. The other thing is, wait until you're called on, and then please give your name and affiliation, and our first hand is right over there. Hi, um, Beatrice, I do have a question slash comment because uh, your um, uh, request to actually uh, elaborate on terminology and what democracy uh, means to uh, each of the panelists goes along with actually this um, lingering question that I had. So um, uh, do you think that actually, um, so um, the, the way I understand democracy, for example, I'm originally from Lisbon, Portugal, and we have a semi-presidential you know, um, uh, political system, very much you know, mirroring the French system. But in the US, I do feel that now that the popular vote has become meaningless, um, how does that affect the concept of democracy? And um, just to go along with the terminology still, um, it's, uh, for me, uh, it's a paradox to talk about private choice. Uh, because choice um, in private schools is is always there as long as you have the money. So um, uh, are you um, associating private choice with private school vouchers? Thank you. All right, that actually, uh, because somebody said we hadn't defined public and private, so that second part was something that already came up. Uh, I guess I'll let you first talk about, do you think, if I have the question right, that because popular vote is now meaningless, what's the implication for democracy? Is that what you're asking? So does anybody want to give a quick answer to that? Yep. So I'd point out, uh, so this was on one of my first main slides, that democracy has some defects within it, right? Um, it is a great system of government but, government, but it's still a government that has serious defects. One is that um, when, okay, so when we all are going out to vote, we know that our outcome of determining the out, the probability of our outcome of us determining the outcome of the election is near zero. In any given presidential election, our likelihood of us determining the vote is about one in 60 million, near zero. And it's highly costly to go out and become politically knowledgeable, to understand what everybody is running for, what policies they uh, promote, and what are the effects of those policies. So it actually becomes... Uh, quite odd that it's actually irrational to become a highly rational voter. And I'd say that's just another uh, problem that is inherent to democracy that we ought to deal with. And um, I'm not sure if we should put kids in schools that are democratically run that have these types of problems as well. I uh, don't 
agree with the premise that the fact of the popular vote is meaningless should have implications for our democracy. Uh, the popular vote was also fairly meaningless in the 1830s. Uh, most people didn't vote, only property landowners, certainly not blacks, certainly not women. Uh, and yet what Tocqueville saw, he saw to be democracy. And he saw it as such not because of the way in which we are ruled, but because of the way in which we relate to one another. Uh, the way in which we form associations, form goals, try to execute those goals. Uh, and so I think a virtue of school choice over the traditional public system is you don't have to have this sense of needing to submit to a political authority that you didn't really participate in in a meaningful way. You are part and parcel of the, the launch, the formation, the existence of an institution uh, that is in our kind of modern minds sub-political, but I think in Tocqueville's mind, the essence of the political. And when it comes to the question of public and private, then the question is uh, the degree to which the public has control over the institution. Um, can the institution do certain things that many of the public might not like? Can the institution, per uh, Rick's slide earlier, explicitly exclude certain people? Uh, in a public school choice setting, absolutely not. Uh, in a private school choice setting, maybe. And then the open question is whether or not uh, our version of uh, our vision of the way that we want to relate to one another as citizens includes the space for that freedom and also for uh, the freedom to let people do things that we might not like. Rick? Yeah, I'll just say two quick things. I, I, I agree mostly with what Max just said. Um, I don't think the popular vote was meaningless. Uh, it was just uh, within each state under our system um, the electoral college system, the majority within that state uh, prevailed. So it wasn't meaningless in the sense that it was a bother for any of us to get up and, and vote. It counted in the way that the, our constitutional system um, designed it to. I, I, you know, I'm not a big defender of the electoral college, but I, I wouldn't go as so far as to say as the, the vote was meaningless. On the public-private distinction, I think that's a really important question. Um, because we have seen some on the right suggest that because a private school voucher is publicly funded, that makes this a public school, the recipient of public school, which is absurd. Uh, you know, it, it's not the financing that, that makes it public, it's the, uh, it's the democratic control over the school in large measure. Um, and so, uh, so there's, there's still a very, important distinction be, between public and private, um, and, and we don't want to try to blur those lines. Corey, you didn't get a chance to say public yeah, so, your definition. Uh, so a lot of people say, well, is it the funding mechanism, like Rick said, and some people say, well, if it's publicly funded, it must be a public school. Obviously, that's not the case because when voucher programs, private schools that are also religious uh, receive public funds and they are still private schools. Uh, other people will point out, well, maybe if they're privately run, well, charter schools are privately run and managed, but those are still public schools in a sense. And I think the real difference is that public schools are free or free at the point of entry. Um, the price is zero. Uh, and private schools are allowed to uh, charge a tuition. I think that's the main difference between a public and private school, uh, which doesn't seem to be a huge difference to me, um, but the economic implications are pretty huge to be able to have uh, price differentiation. Uh, it allows for more market entry. Um, 
and it allows information to travel through the market um, and allows better private schools to be uh, compensated for providing a uh, stronger educational environment. Great. Okay, back to the audience. Uh, let's see. I saw your hand go up second on the previous round. Uh, hello, my name is Hank Gaffney, um, and um, I am a student of the, I have a doctorate in the politics of developing areas, and I have been watching uh, governments uh, for 51 years while in the uh, uh, government or funded by the government, and and watching how governments and countries operate. And when I boil it all down, democracy is or requires rotation of leadership. If leadership is staying in too long, the democracy is going downhill. And uh, somehow, both at the local level in our communities and at the national level overseas, uh, I watch, have watched all the time to see whether there is the rotation of leadership or not. If not, you're drifting into uh, dictatorship. So the question is, any response to that? Um, no, but let me respond to something Max said earlier. <laughs> um, so about this issue of, of American uh, you know, the hyphenated American and whether we, whether we want public schools to, um, to ensure that uh, we all have something in common. And, and Al Shanker, whom I wrote about, uh, said that the primary purpose of, of public schools was to teach children of all different backgrounds what it means to be an American. Now, that uh, could be interpreted as, as exclusive, you know, well, uh, in Max's example, uh, you know, an African-American or an Irish-American, teach them what it means to be an American. But, but the whole point, the whole beauty of it is that, that no matter your background, you can be an American. It's, it's um, if not unique, it's unusual in the world. Uh, you can't uh, really become a Kurd, uh, Shanker said, in the same way that you can become an American. Becoming an American means embracing these democratic values. And where are you taught those uh, democratic values? Through uh, a system of, of public education. So, so I don't see the, um, the, uh, the idea of creating Americans as, uh, as racist or uh, anti-pluralist. Uh, we have our, you know, we all have our identities and, uh, you know, you can go to whatever church you want, whatever uh, synagogue or mosque, but then there has to be something that ties us together as well. And, and that's what the public schools try to impart by teaching democratic values and what it means to be an American, uh, which has nothing to do with the rotation of power, but I, I, I thought your question was in interesting, or observation was interesting. Did you want, yeah, sure, go ahead. Just to respond real quick. Um, just because a public school has a mission to increase democracy or make democracy any better does not mean that public schools are actually doing that. Uh, kids are graduating from high school without knowing very much at all about civics. Um, and we have 90% of kids in public schools right now, and we have a Trump presidency. Uh, so it could be that those things are related. Um, I think this is just an argument that we should increase the, uh, the ability for kids to go to private schools. 
Um, even if private schools don't have an explicit mission saying that we're going to increase democracy, does not mean that private schools aren't inadvertently, perhaps, improving democratic outcomes like the ones I showed you in my studies. All right, well, I'm gonna to go to two, I'm gonna combine two Twitter questions here because uh, they're both related. The first question is, to what extent can education issues be solved by changing curriculum, e.g. studying philosophy and logic, and then specifically to you two guys, but Rick, feel free to answer this too. Uh, it says, what are D'Angelo's and Eden's views on having students pass a civics test prior to high school graduation? So all these are about, can we fix these problems, I guess, through something in the curriculum or testing or something that doesn't involve changing the system? Um, and sure, if you want to go first, it's, it's good by so me. So we have standardized testing for a bunch of other subjects, and that does not improve students' uh, abilities in those subjects either. So why should we expect um, increasing testing on civics um, about things that are kind of just facts and having kids memorize things right before the test? How do we think that's going to improve our democracy? Um, it hasn't worked with other types of tests, so I don't think it'll uh, work this way either. Um, I'd kind of dissent from that. I think that there's a, a significant difference between the kind of standardized tests that we use for school accountability and content tests. Uh, most of the tests that we use when we debate the effect of public schools are trying to measure skills in an abstract way, which are not the same thing as uh, do you know that the Constitution was passed in 1852? Because if you know that, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> so I... Personally, it would be much more sympathetic to a, to a Robert Pendicio-type uh, civics exam. And as to the question of curriculum, um, I think it's something that has been distinctly underexplored over the past uh, few decades. And I think part of the reason why is, become, is because uh, education policy people get rather fixated on notions of policy and how do we twist certain levers and how do we pass a federal law that will make a state law, make a district, do something more like this rather than like that. Uh, and all of that was the kind of thing that I think Tocqueville would call soft despotism and I think actually inhibits the kind of uh, instructional innovation, uh, instructional innovation and differences that I think there's more promise for us to see in the private school system. So I think part of my difference uh, with, with Rick in this is almost more practical than philosophical. I, would love to see the public schools adopt exactly what I think they should adopt. Uh, given that there are a lot of other people who would also love to see them adopt different things, I don't think that's particularly likely, and I would prefer that uh, there were teachers who would teach exactly what I would love my kid to learn, and I could send my kid there. Uh, so I do think the curriculum could be uh, a lever. I think there's a reason we haven't seen it, and I think that school choice is a setting in which uh, holds more promise. I mean, I'll just add quickly that the... Um I'm glad there's this question about curriculum because uh, I, I, I don't agree with, with Corey's logic, which is 90% um, of kids go to public schools. We got, uh, you know, we see declining support for democracy. Therefore, we should give up on public education and outsource the teaching of democracy to institutions whose mission is not to teach democracy. That seems, um, seems like an odd odd sequence of, of thinking to me. Uh, I do think there is a lot that we can do to improve the curriculum, to make it more interesting to students. Uh, I've had some good conversations with Senator Bob Graham, from uh, former senator from Florida, who is uh, all about making civics interesting to students by um, 
engaging them in, in real life projects where there is a complaint that they have in the community, there's, some, there's, a, there's a park that's a, a disaster and needs, um, needs revitalizing, and they go out and they petition the city council to get funds to, to make this change. And you have created uh, you know, beautiful, active citizens through that, and it's, it's so much more interesting to the students than, than, when, it's, uh, than when it's simply uh, taught to them. Uh, through uh, memorization, so so there's a lot we can do without throwing out the the public schools. And I and let me just say one last thing, which is one thing I love about Cato, is that you guys just just come out and say it, right? Most politicians on the right will not say we would like to completely privatize our system of public education. Most of them will say, well, we need vouchers for sympathetic inner city kids to liberate them. And we, you know, we don't want to completely dismantle the system. But here, it's just it's out in the open. And uh, you know, I, 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 I give you guys credit for, for just saying it the way you see it. Because I think that's the end game for a lot of voucher supporters. Um, but they're not willing to, to come out and, and embrace that. Well, on behalf of Cato, I thank you, but it's it's concerning you can only think of one thing you love about Cato. <laughs> uh, so now, uh, more questions. We're going to go over to this side so that no side feels like they're being unfairly treated. So over uh, there, right on the aisle, standing up. Hi, I'm Cal Smith with American Federation of Teachers. I have just a quick question for Corey and Max, and then I have a follow-up question. Uh, my first question for both of you is, uh, what school did you teach at, and what grade and subject was that? Okay, so <clears throat> if you had cancer and would you reject treatment from a doctor unless they had cancer themselves? I would want them to be trained in medicine. Um, sorry, I had to ask just for my fellow teachers. Um, I'm, I'm actually a second grade teacher in St. Louis and now I work with students um, K through two that have social and emotional difficulties. Um, in my experience, I've noticed that the students that have the most troubles are students that either come from impoverished backgrounds or have suffered from trauma. Um, many community schools at public school sites are emerging and they provide wraparound services, um, such as counseling or um, take home lunches, take home dinners, um, stuff that really addresses poverty and addresses trauma. Um, how do private school vouchers and charter schools address poverty and trauma to help the most lowest performing students? Um, you can start off. Well, the great thing about, well, first of all, I, I prefer education savings accounts to vouchers for clear economic theory reasons. But the great thing about education savings accounts or vouchers is that those types of students don't need to leave their public schools. If the public schools are doing such a great job, then the, public, the American Federation for Teachers should have no problem with this uh, if these people aren't going to leave. Um, I would say there are two answers to that. Um, one is that it's quite clear that uh, much of society is much more broken than we would like. And that is fundamentally something that happens or doesn't happen in the home. And an aspiration that I have for school choice, of which there is some evidence, but perhaps not enough for me to be entirely confident of it. Uh, but there is certainly sociological evidence from the DC example that the opportunity to pick a school to take charge of your child's education actually does change the parent 
in a significant way. Um, and so that's a hope that I have for school choice. Pat Wolf talked about it, transforming them from clients into citizens, from people who view education as something they send their kids off to, to something that they take a hands-on role in, both uh, in the education setting, at home, and in the political setting. So it's somewhat aspirational, but it's one reason why I tend to believe it. And another is that there's uh, more freedom for specialization, right? The community schools is propped up uh, around the public system, largely because the public system needs something around it in order for that to operate. Charter schools can have, will uh, specialize in those particular missions, try to serve particular uh, populations, and I think that that differentiation and specialization can reap dividends. I think I think you're you're absolutely right to suggest you know poverty is at the center of our educational. Uh, problems, uh, poverty and segregation, I would say. Uh, and, and Al Shanker, I'm sorry I keep coming back to Al Shanker, but you mentioned the book earlier, and, and we've got the AFT here. So, um, you know, he, he was opposed to a separate Department of Education, in part because, part because the NEA would, would run it, but also because he didn't want uh, health, education, and welfare to be separated. All those things go together intimately. And it's also why he insisted that the AFT be part of the AFL-CIO, the larger labor movement, uh, which the NEA is, is not part of. Um, and his, it, the idea was, if you're part of a social movement that's going to fight for better health care, uh, better housing, for a stronger safety net, that that will help in the teaching of children because all those things are, are essential. Uh, we've known going back to the Coleman report from 1966 that the biggest predictor of academic achievement is the socioeconomic status of the family that a child comes from. So it, it, it's absurd to ignore that uh, central impediment to equal opportunity. Can I interpret that as you're endorsing the end of the U.S. Department of Education? <laughs> I won't. Don't worry. I, I won't <laughs> what about the remerger with HEW? Yeah, I would, I would be for that. Oh, well, okay. New ground broken today that I didn't <laughs> expect. All right, so we're going to go uh, right there, sort of in the middle. Well, actually, behind you, then we'll go to you next. So we'll get that lady, and then we'll get to you next. Oh, yeah, you're, so you who just said me. Okay. These name tags need to be a lot bigger if I'm going to tell people's yeah. names. So. Sorry about that. Um, my name is, oh, that's really loud. My name is Liz. I am a undergraduate student for education. I'm interning here in DC public schools. Um, I have a huge interest in going in one to teach an urban school district. So my question kind of piggybacks off of that and off of his question over there. As advocates for school choice, how do you guys expect the students with parents in lower socioeconomic backgrounds or parents that are not in the picture whatsoever to get access to these voucher programs and to actually take the initiative and to have the knowledge on what schools are going to benefit their children or on the private end are even going to allow their children into the school system based on their race or religious beliefs. Go ahead, yep. So I, I hear this argument a lot that low-income people don't know how to make uh, choices for their, or they may not Maybe maybe less likely to be able to make choices for their child's educational environment. I think that's kind of strange to make that argument because we trust low-income parents to make even more basic decisions for their children. We trust them to make decisions about what kind of clothes they're going to wear. And they're not fashion designers. They're not experts in clothing. 
We allow parents to choose the food that their children are going to eat every day, and they're not nutrition experts. Um, you don't need to be an expert to know how to pick things in life, and uh, you can, I do agree that we should be supplying information, but if private schools want uh, to attract new customers from low-income areas, they will supply them with this information, just like every other industry. Well, if, right, yeah, if you look, well, if you look at almost every voucher program in the United States, it's targeted to disadvantaged, program, uh, disadvantaged students, either by special education status or by income level. Um, I'm a little bit less sanguine, I think, about that than, than Corey. I think the critique that uh, low-income parents from very difficult backgrounds, the notion they don't know how to choose is uh, neither as true or as false as people on different sides of the divide would like to think that it is. Um, I think, again, I'll go back to the Pat Wolf kind of sociological study of the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program, DC's uh, attempt to serve this community. He found that the parents had a lot of problems up front trying to figure out what it even meant, what were they were supposed to look for. Um, and if you throw out a program and you don't give any supports, uh, then it's not clear that they will. If you throw out a program and you try to establish some clear ranking system, uh, it's not clear that the parents are going to trust it. There's some research that suggests that parents don't particularly trust state-given school rankings. Uh, parents, however, do trust other parents and other members of the community. And so, again, this is partly aspirational, but partly we've seen it in D.C. I think we've seen it in Louisiana. Um, Rick is looking at the public school system as a, as a kind of locus for a democratic restoration at the local level. I look at choice in the same way. I think that um, presenting this problem for parents to navigate presents the space for other members of the community to come and help them navigate it. And that is uh, one of the ways that the fabric at that level can start to be mended. Can I jump in too, Neil? Yeah, sure. Even though no one's asking me these questions, I just want to <laughs> chime in. Um, so uh, I, I do trust low-income parents to make choices, um, but there is a lot of evidence to suggest that when choice is not universal, that there is a distinction between the choosers and the non-choosers. And the choosers are relatively more advantaged than the non-choosers. Even with a means-tested program, it's the most advantaged within that group that is more likely to choose. So what's the solution? Um, well, Cambridge, Massachusetts, which, whose data I cited earlier, has a universal choice system within the public school system. So there's no, there are no non-choosers. Everyone must choose. Uh, and so that's a way of blunting the the problem or the inherent inequity that some people are going to have more access to information than, than others. So I think uh, universal choice can, can deal with that issue. Um, one other quick point uh, on, on uh, Corey is absolutely right that in the U.S. many of the initial voucher programs have been targeted to sympathetic groups. Uh, invariably that changes over time. Uh, and so Indiana uh, for example, now has 60% of voucher recipients who are white. You know, the, that was not true when the program started. But over time, these programs develop stronger political constituencies and they grow. And the caps on income are lifted gradually. And so 
that's why I cited all the research from Chile and other countries because they are that's that is the end game universal vouchers and and uh, and that's where you get really bad levels of segregation. Okay, so in the hat right here. you about the you made some comment about the difference in results between I guess charter schools and private schools and you said there were sort of mixed results Mr. Collenberg and have you considered the fact that anything that is government run tends not to improve or change very quickly anything that's privately run um, in which their people have choices to choose tends to get better and better. So I would argue that even if currently the situation is that, that it's not that much better or, or it's better at all to go with uh, uh, private schools or charter schools, you would only expect them to keep getting better and better, whereas the government schools are kind of locked and we have a lot of history to know that public schools haven't changed very much in the last decade. Right. So I, I think what I was referring to was that for years, the research on private school vouchers was mixed. Um, and that in, in Milwaukee, Cleveland, other places, DC, other places, there, there wasn't much of a difference um, for the students who attended private schools with, with vouchers. And and, but what I'm saying is, unfortunately, most recently, there have been a slew of absolutely devastating studies showing that kids go backward uh, in private school voucher programs. And uh, so the, the researchers who looked at these results uh, found, um, you know, these were, were stunning to them. Uh, now, the longer a student is in the voucher program, uh, the the more they, um, you know, they, they have recovered some. But recovering to a point where you're almost even uh, is, not, is not what I would define as success. Uh, so, well, so the future, so- uh, I wanna let, get the other- Yeah, let me just say quickly. So, the, we'll go so I, I like your idea that competition among schools could bring change and improvement. Uh, but I think you can do that within the public school system and have competition that will uh, enhance um, the, the learning for, for all students in the public system rather than resorting to much less accountable uh, and sometimes discriminatory private schools. So I guess you're talking about the Louisiana experiment which found negative test score impacts in the first two years. Uh, but we can't forget that by the third year, the effects were no different from zero. So the students caught up by year three. And what we typically see with voucher programs is at the when they're first started, uh, students need to transition to their new schools, they need to transition to their new environments, but then test scores rise over time uh, as voucher programs, uh, be, as students uh, sort and figure things out. Um, and then of course, we shouldn't only look at the recent studies. We should look at all the studies that are out there. There's 20 experiments. We should be talking about all of those, not just the recent ones, just because 
they happened more recently. And I would argue that the Louisiana results were lackluster because of the fact that this program was so highly regulated. Only a third of the private schools chose to participate in the Louisiana Scholarship Program. And it is also one of the most highly regulated programs. And a study uh, that's forthcoming, or actually just released uh, with some of my co-authors at the University of Arkansas found that out of those 33% of schools, they were the lower quality schools that chose to participate in the program, the ones that were most desperate for funding. Well, that, that's the catch-22 of vouchers, though, right? I mean, let's say we want some government regulation because we don't want people discriminated based on, uh, against based on uh, race or religion or uh, uh, LGBT status. I mean, those, those are democratic norms. We don't want that to happen. That regulation uh, is imposed. And schools that are, you know, another word for private schools, independent schools, they like their independence. They don't want to be told what to do. And so the highest quality ones often don't participate because they don't want, uh, they don't want to have to accept students who don't re, uh, go through their screening. So there's, a, there's an inherent tension uh, and then you end up with the only schools willing to live up to democratic norms being those that are lousy and desperate for students, and then you get poor results. So uh, it doesn't seem like a very good, good way of proceeding. Yeah, so of course there's a cost-benefit analysis that has to be done when you have regulations. Uh, of course, regulations, the politicians have noble intentions. They want to make sure that low-income families cannot make bad choices. That's why regulations are put into place. However, you're driving away a lot of the choices when you increase regulatory costs because that's part of the cost-benefit decision that private schools make when they enter these types of programs. Um, so again, yeah, just to think about it in a different way, let's say there's, there's 10,000 private schools in a particular location, just to, to think about this for a second. And let's say one school, one private school, um, discriminated based on something. I don't know, whatever that is. Uh, you could say, well, we're not going to include any private schools at all, but then you're missing the 9,991 other private schools that kids could have chosen just because of this uh, one school that you're trying to keep out of the program. All right, so we'll go. We got time for one more question. Uh, that puts a lot of pressure on me to pick someone. Uh, so I'm going to go right there. So one of the things that I don't hear addressed very much is uh, what are some of the benefits of a homogenous and top-down system in terms of allowing you to standardize things? Standardizing things like teacher prep, materials, which cuts down on cost, uh, on making things irregulable, on evaluation, um, on things like curating a national discourse. Uh, and so first, I'd like an outline of some of the benefits of uh, top-down or a homogenous system for standardization, and then some thoughts on how you can scale something like school choice without giving up some of those benefits of standardization. Seems complex, so you better get started because we're nearing the end. I guess I should just point out really quickly that that's a very great theoretical argument, but if you look at uh, the relative costs across the two markets, or across the two sectors uh, for that matter, private schools cost a lot less than traditional public schools. So we're not seeing that the top-down system in the public school 
realm is producing any cost benefits. We're seeing that they cost a lot more, actually. I think uh, if we were confident in our uh, knowledge of and skill in the things that you mentioned, there would be potentially significant benefits to standardization and homogenization. Uh, but after decades upon decades of practice and research, we don't really have strong practice for teacher prep. Uh, we don't know that it works. We don't know what works or why it works. Uh, we also don't have that great of a grasp of curricula standards and testing. Uh, and yet we have imposed these things in a non-trivial way across the entire United States. And so uh, maybe it is all better for it, but we had no particular cause for thinking that it would be, and we did it anyway. So it's just a, it's a weird counterfactual, and I kind of tend to err on the notion that you know, it's, we don't know these things, we can't know these things, and attempts to uh, homogenize, standardize, and spread something that might not be knowledge, but we think it is. Uh, I fear that that's counterproductive, and I would tend to trust uh, people who are doing it on the ground more than whatever I, having not taught in the classroom, think is a, a better set of standards or a better set of teacher prep. Uh, so I think part of the uh, benefit of school choice is that it escapes the policy churn of we think that we have something that we want to be everywhere. We don't have that great evidence for it, but we're going to pretend that we do and we're going to push it and we're going to not be that worried about the costs. Ricky, you get the last word if you want it. Yeah, um, of course. Um, I'll grab it. So the... Uh, Part of the original idea of charter schools uh, was to, to get away from some of the standardization. Uh, I'm going to answer the question I thought you were going to ask. Um, and, uh, and the idea was we want to allow uh, some more experimentation within the public school system. Uh, and for years, we've had uh, magnet schools that have allowed for uh, a different type of uh, instruction. Um, and, and I guess the point I'll leave us with is that uh, sometimes people think of the public schools as a standardized system, and then if we simply allowed for privatization, we would unleash all this creativity. And there are lots of really interesting things going on within the public school system in different um, types of programs in magnet schools and, and some... Uh, some charter schools that uh, that will allow for students the the individual students needs of students to be met uh, without giving up on on the importance of our of our public education system. Great. Well, so could everyone please thank uh, the panelists. Um,